Before we get into the show today, I want to talk about some of the on-demand educational content I have available for you over at patreon.com slash ryanpba on the $15 a month tier. Sign up whenever you want, cancel whenever you want, but I've got a lot of great content on there. I've got a brand new class all about gloves, what kinds of gloves are appropriate to use in your studio, sterile versus non-sterile, latex versus nitrile. I've got a great class all about statum sterilizers, general use and maintenance. That's a two-hour class. I've got a new class called Progressive Considerations for Nipple Piercings and a whole lot more. Sign up whenever you want. Cancel whenever you want. $15 a month at patreon.com slash ryanpba. And you can also follow my Body Art Education by Ryan Willette Facebook page for updates on all the new free and paid content that I've got coming down the pipeline. So let's get into the show. You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. Um, Lola's forcing me to do an introduction so that she feels less awkward with what's to follow. Um, you mentioned that you were kind of doing a, a, an internet search for piercing memorabilia, which I guess, is that something that you do like semi-frequently? Stop giggling. Is it, is that, is that something that you do like semi-frequently? Because like I've, you know, every now and then I'll go on Amazon or eBay or something and I'll try to look for things that I know would be a collectible that I've wanted for a while. It's actually not something I do very often, usually owing to the fact that I don't have any money. Um, So I I tend not to go like window shopping for like, you know, piercing related memorabilia. Um, Usually when something does pop up, it's got a bit of a price tag on it um, just because of its memorabilia value. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. I just... I think it was because I was getting everything organized to reopen the studio and it just popped into my head. You know, I haven't done a quick search on eBay in a while. Like you never know, sometimes there's posters and books and pictures that just kind of pop up that are maybe not like, you know, treasures, but they're pretty cool vintage things. And those Well, I mean, they're, they're treasures. They're treasures to you. They're treasures to me, but they might not be treasures to like the general public or even the person who's in possession of it. Yeah. So um, I went on eBay last week and just completely by chance, um, there was a magazine available to buy um, for £10. And um, it wasn't a piercing specific magazine. It's a music magazine with uh, a big article in it about body piercing. And it's from 1993. so obviously the the pool that they could be drawing information from at that time would have been a lot more limited than what it is now. Um, and it's called Select, or more, more specifically Select Pop Babylon um, is the name of the music magazine that it was. And, um, and it's a UK specific magazine? Yeah, it's a UK magazine. I don't know if it was released in other parts of the world. I don't know anything about the history of the publication other than uh, I don't believe that it's still running. Um, but it's like a, it's, it's a music magazine, you know, similar to what I would imagine to things like, you know, NME and Kerrang and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was no information at all on the cover about what the contents of the article might be, other than they were going to sit down with a couple of um, like rock stars of the time 
and talk to them about what piercings they had and what their motivations were. And, um, you know, I thought maybe there might be some information about where they got pierced. Um, so I bought it and uh, it just literally arrived today. And it has this great front cover, um, which is basically the, the members of L7. Um, they had the their hit uh, Pretend That We're Dead, I think. That was L7, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the album was called Bricks Are Heavy. I had that when I was, uh, however old, like 11. Wait, it probably came out when I was like 12, I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is them kind of at the height of that fame. And uh, the front cover is L7. And uh, they all have some facial piercings, some of which look like they're, they're kind of, you know, fake or clip-ons. And they have mm. um, chains, like interwoven, connecting their face piercings. So... I can let you have a look so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, for a it's pop cool. music for the early 90s, it's pretty out there. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be any kind of image that would be at home on like the cover of PFIQ or something. So it was immediately eye-catching. Um, a piercing probe with L7, Faith No More, and Mr. Lifto. But it's, it's cool because like sometimes you get a magazine like that and there'll be a couple of references to it or whatever. But you were reading me some of the content that's in it. And it's really like a time capsule of piercing in the early 90s. And I was really just kind of instantly captivated by it. Yeah. So like I said, there was no indication other than the fact that, you know, it was going to be about musicians and their piercings as to what the content might be. And then when I actually opened it, when it literally just arrived today and we were looking at it together over Zoom, um, it was actually like a pretty in-depth interview featuring some really well-known names within the piercing industry. Uh, Mr. Sebastian, Elaine Angel feature in it quite heavily. Um, so it just seemed like kind of a bit of a hidden gem, really. Yeah. Well, um, I want you to take plenty of breaks for drinking tea, but I want you to maybe read me as much as you're interested in in that magazine, mm -hmm. because the, the bits that you read me were very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a big feature as well. You know, usually in magazines when they do something like this where I've seen it before, it's maybe just like, you know, a one-page feature and some random, you know, did you know, throwaway facts about body piercing, but it's actually like a really in-depth interview with some um, really well-respected and well-known body piercers. So it's just kind of, it, it was, it's weird when you're, um, you know, we're completely immersed in piercing world and piercing land pretty much all the time. So there are names to us that are incredibly famous. And it's weird when you get them coming up in a magazine like this and thinking like, why wouldn't they mention that on the cover? Why mm -hmm. wouldn't they mention? And, and then you realize that like to everybody else, um, while they would have known they were talking to skilled body piercers, they wouldn't have known the longevity that they were going to have or maybe that they had had or the cultural significance of those people so it's just like a really neat little surprise time capsule. Mm -hmm. I'm having to drink a lot of tea today because I have throat death. Throat death. <laughs> it's, a, it's a medical term. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to take a look at this? Yeah. I mean, narrate it as much as you would like for the listeners at home or wherever they are. And um, just whatever bits you think are interesting. Okay. So the first kind of full A4 page of this, um, of this spread is a really cool black and white photograph close up of a hand 
holding uh, breast tissue um, and just kind of cupping a nipple. And the nipple has a double nipple piercing with one barbell and one circular barbell. So again, like really cool and out there for the time period that this was released in 1993, yeah. having like a full beautiful black and white portrait of um, a body piercing that even today isn't, isn't super rare, but definitely isn't something that you see all the time. Yeah, not um, every day. Is, is really cool. Uh, there are some, there's some language in this that I'm, I'm not going to read out because, you know, it's, it's aged badly. And I don't, I mean, like, I think that it's important articles are totally um, maintained in their original form. But I don't think that we need to put anything out there that could be, you know, or is offensive. Are you talking um, about the reference to the urethra? Yeah, but there's that, and, you know, like there's a couple of other just bits of language that aren't needed. Sure. There's definitely some terminology used that was like not acceptable and probably wasn't acceptable then either. No, it's 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 like straight out racist. But I, I think at the time, uh, you know, whatever, that, that's a whole other debate for another day. But yes, I, I would prefer that that language is not repeated. Yeah, that's we can live without that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read some of the what do you call them? Just like the titles, you know, when in magazines, they just put big word splashes across the page. Yeah. I don't know what the name for that is. So in giant letters in black on a yellow background, it says hips, lips, tits, ouch. Very eye-catching. Uh, flesh. That's what I was originally going to name my studio. Hips, lips, tits, ouch. Yeah. Um, flesh pierces, which is a really weird way of saying piercings, but okay. Flesh pierces. Oh, and I should add, this was uh, the oh the photo was taken by David Tung. Um, they're just credited there, so I just wanted to mention. I think that they're the person that wrote the article as well. Um, oh. But we shall see. So flesh pierces are edging out tattoos as the body statement. But do they rust in the bath? Do they go septic? And do they get caught in your fly? Miranda Sawyer meets Pierce Ease from L7, Faith No More and More, and probes the perforations that let the flavor flood out. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Um, so I think what I'll do is I'm just going to read for a little bit. And if you want to interrupt me at any point, um, or if there's anything that you want to add or comment, I guess just do that. That sounds really unlike me. Okay. <laughs> it's a small room, warm and low ceilinged, scented with the sweet ash of an incense stick. The windows are frosted, the door closed. The young disciples, apparently nothing, hum softly from a portable tape recorder. Usually the room is low lit, but the central light's on now, illuminating every nook in a harsh surgical glare. In the center beneath the blazing bulb is a medical bed and there are two bottles and instruments on a side table. Two young women, Ashley and Tina Marie, sit opposite each other, their knees almost touching. Ashley is looking directly into Tina's eyes. Tina is looking directly at Ashley's tongue. It's stuck straight out. She eyes it professionally, bending to see its underside and peering from above before marking a tiny dot on its top and underneath with a thin blue pen. Ashley looks in the well-lit mirror, flicking her tongue to see the marks. Fine, she says. So Tina takes a pair of slender metal clamps, like scissors, but with a blunt, flat, open triangle end, and maneuvers them around Ashley's tongue 
until they clip right behind the top and bottom dots. She picks up a small cork and a hollow metal needle fresh from its sealed bag. Okay then, ready, she asks, looking straight into Ashley's eyes for confirmation before she very smoothly and swiftly pushes the needle down and through the tongue into the cork below. That's, um, I mean, that's definitely how I started piercing tongues. Yeah. And it was probably because of, of media like this. I would see it in magazines or I would see it in videos and then I would just try to replicate it. You know, like earlier on in my piercing career, I wouldn't have put any thought into like, well, how would I do this? You know, it, it's really just like, you know, how do they do it and can I copy it? But, I mean, it's very descriptive for a mainstream mm -hmm. magazine. Like this came out when I was three years old. If I'd have read this when I was a kid, it would have been like mind blowing. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know if you can explain something to me, but in my head, visually, when I'm picturing somebody clamping a tongue, where and then piercing down, holding the clamps takes a hand, like holding the needle takes a hand. So like, where, where does the cork come into things? Do they pierce and then you get a cork and then cork it? Is that what so they're saying? For people that aren't seeing the video, I'm making a gesture to Lola, but it would basically be, <laughs> like I would be holding the clamp with my uh, pinky ring finger and middle finger and then side of my palm. But then I would be holding the cork between my thumb and index finger. So I'd be holding it like this. The tongue would be this way. I would be mm -hmm. holding the clamp with these fingers and my palm holding the cork with these fingers. The tongue would be placed over it and I would just pierce down into the cork. So it's like this weird, this weird grip. Like most of the time that's when you would have a rubber band handling your tension on the forceps so you were basically just lightly gripping the forcep but the the rubber band was applying the tension and then you would be holding the cork with your index finger and thumb pierced down into it i definitely did that but i remember that being one of the earlier techniques where i was like this doesn't feel natural or safe to me at all so that's when i started piercing tongues from the bottom up yeah. with with clamps still i removed the i removed the elastic from the clamps. So then I always end up like holding the loop of the forceps in my thumb index finger and controlling the pressure with my middle finger um, and like holding it on the tongue and then piercing from the bottom up. And that made more sense to me instantly. But yeah, the whole like rubber band and cork tongue procedure, I think almost every piercer is going to have some sort of exposure to a technique like that. Yeah. Um, for a second, Ashley's whole body tenses. Her eyes widen, she breathes hard through her nose as Tina pushes the rest of the needle through and out the other side with a half inch long surgical steel rod the same diameter as the needle. Tina screws a small ball on the bottom of the rod, identical to the one at its other end and now resting on top of the tongue. The rest of the rod hangs beneath. Tina smiles cheerfully. It's really awkward for the first week, she says, but you get used to it. Nice. What a I'm lovely guess. little interview of a tongue piercing happening. I love that. Well, because it would be like, like no one would be able to understand um, because I would guess at the time they were probably getting pierced with like, what would it be in mills? Maybe 22. Um, but with like a four or five millimeter ball, like it would have been like a substantial chunk of metal in that person's mouth. I'll also guess that for aftercare, probably Listerine was still at that point so probably wasn't very fun to heal a tongue piercing in 1993 so do you want me to continue yes i do okay great i should continue uh the tongue swells and that's why the rod's so long you can change it for a shorter one or a ring when the piercing's healed 
Ashley nods, speaking seems a little too much to ask for the moment. Presently though, she lies on the medical bed with a cool wet towel on her forehead and with uh, the light lowered once more, she dribbles just a little and comments, that was still nowhere near as painful as when I had my nipples done, you know? Hmm. Um, so on this page, there is a really lovely A5 black and white picture of Mr. Lifto of the Jim Rose Circus. Um, and he is carrying or preparing to carry what looks like a suitcase through his tongue piercing. Let you have a look. That's great. Yeah, baby face. One one quick story I want to tell about Mr. Lifto, and I'm not entirely sure if it's like fully accurate, but maybe it's more like urban legend. But um, he used to have a trick where he would lift stuff with a Prince Albert piercing, and I'm fairly certain that when I I, I got to see the Jim Rose uh, Circus Sideshow perform live, it was at a little nightclub in Boston around I think it was 1997. It might have been 1996. I'm not exactly sure. But um, Lifto came out and he didn't do the PA trick, but he had, it looked like he had a whole bunch of stuff like taped around his dick. And um, the story that I heard was that he accidentally tore out his Prince Albert doing that trick with something too heavy or it got caught or there was some sort of an accident and he tore out his PA. So he ended up piercing his penis with either an, I would imagine it was an Ampelang and not an Apodravia if he had torn out a PA. So I think when I saw him, he was like using tape or some sort of a wrap as support to be able to lift something with his Ampelang if it wasn't like healthy enough to, to lift something on its own. Um, and it was a really interesting show. And it was like super formative for like 16 or 17 year old Ryan to see live. Yeah. So, um, your mother won't like it, your boss is going to flip, and your lover might tweak too hard. That is, of course, if they haven't been pierced themselves. Body, pe body pierces, uh, it, it keeps calling piercings like pierces, but- That's okay. a very awkward phrase, and I'm gonna guess that that's like something a journalist would say, because I don't think anybody connected to piercing would call it pierces. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and just say it how they say it to sure. preserve their, their journalistic efforts. But it is a little weird, isn't it? A little bit. It doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. Body pierces are following tattoos into mainstream fashion, according to L7's Jennifer Finch. Ever since Rachel Bolan from Skid Row had his nose done, it's been out of control in the LA rock scene. They're almost compulsory. Look at Jennifer's navel or the brand new eyebrow adornments of Mike and Roddy from Faith No More, or Axl Rose's fetchingly ringed nipple. Madonna, who let's face it, never creates fashion, just picks up on trends more quickly than most. Ooh, burn for Madonna there. That's <laughs> kind of weird. Okay. That is a little hot, a little hot yeah. tea. Uh, opened sex with shots of her cavorting with two well-punctured women. And it's a sure bet that if she's into pierces now, the rest of the Western world will be oh faked within six months. That's really interesting because like if this article came out in 1993, mm -hmm. I would assume that a lot of the culture they're talking about is, you know, 91, 92, something like that. And um, like, I never really got exposed to the wider world of piercing until about 95 or 96, which is when I got into it, like really heavily, really quickly. And um, just thinking that like in that era, my exposure was like, 
Jonathan Davis from Corn having his mm-hmm. eyebrow pierced or like Alicia Silverstone getting her navel pierced in the crying video. But then like, if you look back just like five years or not even five years previous, it was like a whole other generation of what people were talking about as body piercing in pop culture. Keith Flint from The Prodigy. Mm-hmm. That was probably the first person I can remember seeing on TV with like a septum piercing. Yep. Um, in the UK in 1992, it saw a growing acceptance of bondage and fetishism into club and even pop culture. Remember Kylie's white clean tour wear? Perhaps paving the way for a more liberal attitude towards pierces. Recently, even, even Kilroy and Dial Midnight have centered programs around the topic. Body piercing, like so many fashions, has seeped out of the gay men's world into popular heterosexual style. Recently, I saw in on, I sat in on three pierces. It's going to drive me crazy that they keep calling it pierces. It's so hard to read. Nipple, eyebrow, tongue, performed upon two people. One was Tom, a 20-year-old floppy-haired baseball-hatted construction worker. The other, the aforementioned Ashley, was a hairdresser in her mid-20s. Tom had his left nipple pierced. He'd never been, he'd never had a body pierced before, though he was tattooed and wore two earrings in his left ear. He was somewhat apprehensive and smoked a lot beforehand, but admitted that he'd been worrying about it all day and nearly cancelled his appointment. But minutes later, after Tina Marie had slid in the earring, he relaxed. It hadn't been all that bad. He just decided, just a heavy pinch and a spot of lightheadedness afterwards. Ashley had both her tongue and her eyebrow pierced, The tongue gave her a bit of trouble just because the rod left in was so long, but the eyebrow was nothing. She'd already had her ears pierced several times, plus her nose and nipples. It's really interesting. It, it, I mean, it, it takes me back to a vibe of like this kind of environment and like what they're talking about. That's what kind of like inspired me. That's what I caught on to a few years after this, but that's kind of what I caught on to that, that whole shop vibe where it was still like, I don't know. It seems like it's a more substantial event in these people's lives than it is today. Today, it's a little bit more disposable and it's a little bit more fashion. On both occasions, Tina Marie was friendly, relaxed and efficient, almost dentist-like. Once her work was done, we sat and chatted for half an hour and the antiseptic surgical atmosphere soon evaporated. It soon felt as though Tom or Ashley had dropped by on a social call and just happened to leave with one or two extra adornments. Hardcore S&M, this was not. It's cool. Yeah, I'm enjoying reading it. This is like my first time properly reading it other than just glancing over it with you. Yeah. Um, There's a credit here where it says Lawrence Bell. So I'm not sure if that's the person who's authored the article. And David Tongue's the photographer. Maybe it'll clarify at the end. Okay. I wouldn't want to like read without credit in them or anything. Piercing today crosses all boundaries. It's not an exclusively gay leather type thing anymore. People come from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Doctors, attorneys, police officers, college professors, rock stars. You wouldn't guess what's under some people's clothing. So says Elaine Binney. So at this point, I just want to point out for listeners that that's Elaine Angel, who at the time was going by the last name Binny. Um, so and we did reach out to Elaine. 
we did reach out to Elaine to make sure she was comfortable with us mentioning that last name. Yeah, I'm just going to refer to her as Elaine. Sure. Um, so it says, Elaine, manageress of LA's Gauntlet, probably the oldest piercing establishment in the Western world, founded in 1975 by Jim Ward to manufacture piercing jewelry. Gauntlet now has three shops in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. Now, do you know if the one that they were in was the original one? I believe the original one was San Francisco. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, but they're, they're in LA. So it yeah. might not have been the original one, but they have most of the other information pretty right. Well, my, the, the thing that I'm really fascinated by is how they're talking about it in the present tense. Like I, I think most piercers now, um, I mean, almost all piercers now would see gauntlet as like a past tense kind of thing. But I just love that this article was written in a moment and it, and it just, it takes you right back to that moment. Yeah. Um, Gauntlet now has three shops in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, where you can be pierced with as well as buy the rings. It also runs an international mail order service, which publishes the magazine Piercing Fans International Quarterly, or PFIQ. Gauntlet produces videos telling you how to home pierce safely and correctly, and its employees train apprentices up to a high standard. LA-born Tina Marie was one of Elaine's trainees, and she has, like Elaine, and she, like Elaine, prefers an open, informative approach to body piercing. So things that strike me as interesting about this is, first of all, for a lot of younger piercers, it'll be bonkers, the idea of learning to pierce by video mail. Yeah. But at that time, there would have just been no infrastructure for learning of any kind. Like there wouldn't have been studio saturation throughout the country enough that people could actually go to somebody and an apprentice in right. any kind of like realistic way. Do you, do you know the, the tale of like Johnny Appleseed? No. It's just, you know, someone would walk around the, the country of the United States, like scattering apple seeds and then apple trees would grow everywhere because, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's, that's kind of what Gauntlet was. Gauntlet took something that they knew uh, like a certain percentage of the population would be passionate about. And they knew that there were probably going to be people around the world that they just hadn't found a way to connect to that passion yet. And they just, they spread it around like gauntlet made body piercing what it is not, not completely by themselves. Um, but Jim Ward and what he created through gauntlet and, you know, what they created through the APP and all that, like, that's what made body piercing what it is today. Uh, I want to go off on just like a, like a short story because, um, you know, I was, I was that person. And like, I don't, I don't mean to keep going back to that. Well, but um, you know, that was my, that was my experience. And there was a, a, another piercer or like piercing enthusiast who became a piercer in New Hampshire. And we used to hang out when we were teenagers, we met at the mall, like being goth kids on a Friday night. And like, they had piercings, I had piercings. And then we started hanging out and they had these videos called gauntlet pierce with a pro. And um, it was like, you know, one video was like male genital piercings. One video was female genital piercings. You know, I know that terminology is outdated now, but you know, that's what they were. And then, you know, general body piercings and stuff. And so we would watch the videos and then we would like go into his bathroom and like pierce each other. And uh, like, that was probably like 1997 or something like that. And I know that that's horribly irresponsible now. And there's really not much you could do to excuse that kind of behavior now. But at the time, there were no shops to get mentored by. There were no shops to get employment opportunities by. So at, at, 
in that day and era in time in New Hampshire, if you wanted to get into piercing, that's how you got into piercing, you know, like doing stupid stuff. And I'm glad that now people have access to way more information, but they also have access to like much safer training and, and mentorship and uh, professional standards and all that stuff. But uh, at the time, you know, in a time capsule, um, I was so into it at the time in the nineties, like reading magazines or like finding videos out of the back of magazines and just being like, what is this? What is this thing called body piercing? Um, so if someone phoned me up and said, I want to pierce myself, how do I go about it? I talk them right through the whole thing. I don't like that secretive attitude you find in Great Britain, you know, keeping the trade secrets to yourself. Um, so I think that that's really interesting because reading the previous paragraph, it did immediately made me think about how when I started piercing, it was still very much in that don't tell anybody anything yeah. kind of period, which seemed to persist for a long time. Um, and I don't know if it's just because the UK is smaller, um, but there has always been an attitude of, of extreme, you know, I don't know if fear of competition is the right way to put it, but it does seem like a smaller place at times. And I don't know if that's maybe part of why if there's someone offering these services, they might be reluctant to give that information um, to someone else. Cause that person would likely be, you know, within an hour's drive a lot of the time. Sure. Um, so I don't know if that is what's part of it, but there's definitely an incredibly heavy sense of, or was, you know, it's not so much anymore an incredibly heavy sense of, you know, secrecy and not sharing information, not sharing techniques, not sharing supplier information. If you got something good, you didn't want anyone else to know where you got it because then they would get it and you wouldn't be the only one that had it. Um, and I don't know if that's maybe part of what's maybe kept the UK behind in some ways, because now the way that we feel about it is a lot more, well, why wouldn't I want every shop to be selling the best? You know, that creates a level playing field that raises the overall market value of piercing, which benefits the whole industry. Whereas, you know, competitive stuff doesn't always um, result in better business for everybody. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's part of it. Um, but I mean, like if I had to guess. I think piercing was um, for a long time in a lot of markets was very much like niche. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, if there's a very limited client base, if there's limited access to limited manufacturers, like, yeah, I want, I want all of it for myself. Yeah. Now I think there are so many clients out there. There's so many vendors out there. There are so many different types and, sh and styles of shops and the services they offer and the environment they offer it in. I think now it, it, it is really like an, an environment where we should all be sharing to make the industry stronger. But at the time in the nineties, the market was so small. I mean, even just companies to get body jewelry from, you know, super short list. You could probably count all the good companies on one hand. Um, and of course, like at the time of this article, it was still like, obviously like Gauntlet having opened in 1975, um, that would have been what, like 17, 18 years old by the time this article was published. Yeah. And there's still very much, um, in a period of wanting to spread information and wanting to populate studios throughout America. And it's almost as if, you know, like there is that recognition that the more studios there are, the more customers there are going to be, the bigger the industry can be. But it's like, I don't know at what point that like, you know, tipped over 
but it's like at some point you just shut down. I don't know if it's if it's the case that, you know, every major city started to have a piercing studio and maybe people started to get a little bit, you know, uncomfortable or paranoid or insecure, but the information sharing, maybe not in America, I mean, certainly in parts of America um, and throughout the UK, information sharing just closed and shut down completely. I've been treated like that. When I, when I was younger, um, not to say that I'm a somebody now, but I was definitely a nobody once. And like when I was a nobody, people didn't want to talk to me or share information. If I'd say something, I, I would be a nuisance to them. They'd be like, why would I want to share that information with you? Because that's less money that I can go make. Now I, I don't see it that way. I see that like, you know, the pie is so large that everybody can have plenty and like nobody has to go hungry. Um, yeah. So I, I see it differently now, but at the time, you know, it, it, whatever, you know, I'm not going to judge anybody for their business practices more than 20 years ago. Totally. It's just a cool observation to see that even in the early 90s, like it was apparent that information sharing, particularly in the UK, was just not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, where are we now? Neither she nor Elaine use anesthetic when they pierce, though they might numb the area with a spray. They use a fresh needle for each piercing, then throw it away. They disinfect each earring before use, always good quality surgical steel or high carat gold. They make sure the diameter of the needle and the ring pierce is the same so that the ring or rod will follow the needle smoothly and they clamp the relevant area so as to be as accurate as possible. They make sure the client is relaxed and has time to recover from the piercing and they advise on aftercare. Everything is practical, hygienic, accessible and safe. This is all a far cry from when the celebrated Mr. Sebastian started piercing. Perhaps Britain's most respected piercer and tattooist, this bald-headed, bearded, kind-eyed man in his early 60s stands in complete contrast to the glowing and glamorous 26-year-old Tina. Their hygiene and methods differ a little, except in anesthetics, and they hold each other in high regard, but their different approaches reflect their contrasting backgrounds. Tina is more open, modern, and despite living in the UK for the past nine years, very American. It's hard not to get hold of her number, and she's been interviewed by The Guardian, plus all four TV channels. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is really <laughs> All four TV channels. All four? <laughs> all four. It's amazing. Oh, the past. Um, she's currently thinking of joining forces with Elaine and her tattooist husband, Alex Binney, now divorced, this was in 1993, and opening a shop in the West End where people could walk in and be tattooed or pierced without an appointment. So at this time, opening a walk-in studio by the sound of it would have been unusual. Yeah. We're gonna I, I, I think uh, it's probably visibility. I think a lot of body art studios at that time were on like the second or third floor. They might not have had a lot of signage. So maybe they had their, their clientele but I don't think they were getting a lot of like walk-in tourist traffic. So yeah, I can imagine that being a big difference at the time. Mr. Sebastian's on the other hand was shrouded in mystery. I was told on more than one occasion that he's impossible to contact unless you're already established as part of the gay male tattooing and piercing scene. That he's unfriendly towards women and protective about his techniques. In the end, none of this was true. But with 35 years of piercing behind him, he has progressed through the more secretive, almost exclusively homosexual era of piercing to the present day. So his perspective is more private than Tina's. 
He first saw body piercing while in British Guyana. Some field hands had their nipples pierced and Mr. Sebastian was so excited by the idea that he asked them to take him to have his done. He'd seen photos of pierced Edwardian gentlemen before, but this was his first view of a real life pierce. After that, Barry's friends would ask him to pierce them. Each time he'd practice on himself to see how best to go about it. There was no special jewelry in those days, so often he would insert little bits of plastic cut to the right size. He even used plastic curtain rings. <laughs> Hopefully he removed the curtains before doing that. Um, gradually over the years, he met more piercing fans until he finally linked up with Jim Ward of Gauntlet and Doug Malloy, a businessman who funded Gauntlet initially. After that meeting, 15 years ago, Mr. Sebastian began piercing seriously as a full-time job along with his tattooing. Before that, he remembers, I was a respectable school art teacher. Well, not all that respectable, but respected at least. Hmm. It was Mr. Sebastian who pierced and tattooed Genesis P. Orridge of Psychic TV and his wife Paula, both of whom have become unofficial, unwilling publicists for the pierced lifestyle. Genesis has said that Mr. Sebastian has stayed very exclusive and reclusive, and the very idea of him running a non-appointment shop is laughable. So just for the people who didn't grow up in British piercing culture, can you talk a little bit about Mr. Sebastian, like just from your personal point of view? Because for me in the US, it was very much like Jim Ward, but it seems like, you know, piercers in the UK, it was very much like, Mr. Sebastian is one of those original seeds of, of where body piercing came from. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But last year um, at, for UK APP conference, we had planned on exhibiting a, a history of UK body piercing um, with Paul King as part of an exhibit, which would have been our first time doing an exhibit, um, just basically featuring the history of UK piercing and letting the attendees experience that. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, the conference ended up being canceled, but it would be really nice to be able to, to do that in the future, if and when we get the opportunity, um, because it was really something that we wanted to be displayed in the UK first. Um, I mean, it's not the end of the world if it's premiered in the US because of you know travel restrictions and, and all that kind of thing, but it would be nice um, for it to take place in the UK, but we just have to wait and see. Um, Mr. Sebastian is most famous in mainstream media for um, being part of the Spanner case, which is, I, can, I haven't read yet, but I can see on the next page, they do go into that a little bit. So if you want, I can, I can read on and we can kind of talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Moreover, since 1990, Mr. Sebastian has been driven even more underground. Just turning pages here. Given a 15-month suspended sentence in the Spanner trials and warned of administering anesthetics, he had disappeared from any sort of public view. The Spanner trials, named after the police investigation that led to the prosecutions that took place in December 1990 at the Old Bailey, 15 men were convicted for various offences, mostly assault-related, for their taking part in entirely consensual S&M practices. They made the mistake of videoing everything, it says in parentheses. So-called ringleaders were sent to prison 
And although the Court of Appeals reduced their sentences this year, it upheld that their actions were criminal. The legal position of body piercing has remained unclear since Spanner. There is currently no specific legislation to cover it. Um, so in the UK, there, there still isn't, to be honest. It's still like frighteningly ambiguous at times. There are so many ways the law can be interpreted around piercing. Um, for example, in parts of the UK, there is no age limit on piercing a minor. Um, in, in certain parts of the UK, there are, but not throughout, um, which causes a lot of ambiguity, which leads to studios setting their own kind of age limits. And it can be frustrating because when a parent comes in and they can be like, why can't you pierce my 10 year old's navel, for example, you can be like, oh, we can't do that. We're not allowed. And, you know, like if you get a parent that's going to be difficult enough to Google, um, you know, they're going to be able to find that in a lot of instances, the only legislation or regulation that there is says that parental consent needs to be given. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's not a responsible piercer in the country that's going to offer a service like that for a 10 year old with or without parental consent. So, um, you know, the lack of clarity can be problematic. But to be honest, I'm at a point where I'm grateful for the lack of clarity because you know, like in previous years, in recent history, there was obviously the huge issue surrounding um, vulva piercing being considered a form of FGM. Um, and it can wasn't- we, Can we actually just sidetrack for a minute? Because I don't want to shine over that. Like people might not be familiar with, with the terms FGM or GBH. So I wouldn't mind touching on that really quickly if you wanted to just give like a very brief explanation that we can go back to the article. Sure, Fem uh, FGM stands for female genital mutilation. And it's kind of a broad term that's used to describe um, lots of different practices um, that can be performed on um, children, basically. Um, it, it's something that traditionally happens to small children um, where they're cut or altered to, to varying degrees. Sometimes it can, there, there are various stages to it. Um, so what the, the NHS or the National Health Service in the, the UK did was it created a type system to define types of FGM. So type one being the most severe and then type three, type two, type four. And type four was basically anything else that might happen to the vulva any other injuries that might occur to the vulva. And of course, piercing was mentioned specifically. It didn't say body piercing, but it did say pricking or piercing of the skin, um, which is very much the definition of body piercing. It doesn't elaborate it beyond that. I had spoke to Paul King years ago about it, and he was telling me about um, certain practices where somebody might be pricked with uh, like a thorn or, a, you know, like a little spine, and maybe that could be part of where the term for pricking and piercing comes from, but piercing was included regardless. Um, and then obviously more severe from that, you're looking at things like tissue removal, um, either just, you know, superficial removal or complete removal of the clitoris. And then there's infibulation, which is um, where people's labia are sewn together. And I read uh, a really great book from uh, an FGM survivor who went on to become an advocate um, for um, survivors of FGM called Cut, which was all about her experiences. And it was just amazing and you know heartbreaking to read about the extent of the damage that caused and how it's not 
I mean, it's already as bad as you can imagine, but it's something that keeps coming back throughout your whole life. Um, you know, like you can never, you know, like if you're doing things like having children or needing any kind of gynecological care, you're very much stamped to someone that has this problem. And then a whole bunch of other medical procedures are kind of performed on you without you even really being explained what they are or understanding what they are um, so that you can safely give birth. And, and it almost like there's, you know, even once you are in what should be considered quality medical care, things aren't explained to you and you aren't, you know, humanized in, in the way that you should be as a patient. You're just kind of like, oh, it's one of these, we'll do this stuff. And it actually continues the, the traumatic cycle of, you know, abuse of the individual's body. And it was a really, really good book. Yeah. Anyway, kind of falling well, down the hole here. That's a bit of a deep dive. I, it's, it's something that you know so much about, though, because of the work that you've done through the UK APP to have kind of like a separation, an official separation made between like what is even the vague definition of FGM and does that include body piercing? And you got health Scotland to, to make an official statement that consensual adult body piercing was not linked to FGM, correct? Um, so basically, through, well, throughout the UK, what it actually comes down to is the Crown Prosecution Service, mm -hmm. um, which is basically the, the, the service that determines whether or not certain cases will meet the criteria to be brought to trial. Um, and they ultimately published guidance, which was um, in the form of a table that highlighted you know if something is going to be treated as as criminal fgm these are the standards it needs to meet ask yourself these questions mm -hmm. and there was you know if it ticks these boxes then it's criminal fgm if it ticks these other boxes maybe it's not um and then you know they listed things like was this done you know consensually on an adult in a licensed premises and yep. that was as close as we could physically get to having the Crown Prosecution Service acknowledge the issue, which mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like a lot, but was a huge accomplishment. I, I remember I remember having some of my first exposures to like what the UK APP was and would be. And I remember a central issue being like that almost the entirety of the, the UK piercing scene refused to offer vulva piercings because they were afraid of potential prosecution. Well, at the time I refused, there, there were some who, who refused to refuse and just kept doing them as a form of protest. Um, I refused to offer all genital piercings because I just couldn't agree with saying I'm not going to pierce vulvas but I'll pierce penises because that just felt equally wrong. Um, but where it really mattered for the, the victims of FGM was that if you were an individual that had vulva piercings and you went for any kind of gynecological exam, the, the practitioner um, helping you was instructed to record you as having type 4 FGM yeah. without your consent, without your permission, or without ever, ever asking you, you know, about the piercings that you had. And that was all fed into the national statistics for FGM, which, of course, massively skews the data that they collect on the subject um, because they've, they've just piled in a whole other demographic of people that haven't been victims of a crime. Um, and so it was like really important for that reason as well to make sure that that, that wasn't happening, that people that have chosen to have vulva piercings weren't being turned into victims invol you know, involuntarily. Yeah. Right. And the actual victims of FGM weren't being severely undermined um, through lack of understanding of, of what it really is. Mm -hmm. um, but 
that's part of I'm glad that we got that clarification but for me that's part of the reason that I personally prefer the idea of less attention and less legislation because there's a big part of me that feels like if we get up and start like you know banging pots with saucepan lids and saying we want more legislation I think we're going to get it and I think it's going to be more restrictive than we maybe want it to be so I think that you have to be incredibly cautious when you're demanding more legislation be put in place because you know you because you're not the one writing the legislation. You're handing over your industry to someone else who doesn't know anything about your industry. Exactly. So yeah. for me, getting clarification on things like consent, which is really what the entire FGM piercing issue is about, and really what where the entire you know spanner operation really let down the people involved was the complete lack of recognition of consent and the part it plays in S&M communities and in piercing. Well, that, that's an important part that I wanted to to use to tie it back into the the article and the point of time that they're talking about being the, the Spanner case. Um, you know, the one term FGM, but there's another term that I've learned, GBH, grievous bodily harm. And basically that, uh, that can be used in a court of law to negate uh, personal consent, uh, even of an adult. And that's what was used in, uh, you know, there, there was a long form article I did with Dr. Matt Lauder about the case of Dr. Evil, where if you're interested in it, definitely go back and give that a listen because it's very important when it comes down to this kind of stuff, like, you know, being arrested, being charged, being convicted of grievous bodily harm. And that grievous bodily harm is consensual body artwork on, you know, adult clients. But the Spanner case is, is kind of loosely tied in there because it was, um, you know, kink activity done on uh, an SM community, gay men community, and the law didn't like it and, you know, wanted to find some sort of way to punish the people that they were just uncomfortable with living their lives consensually. So they used the GBH law to basically say like, okay, you can't perform this heavy SM material on each other, even if it's consensual, even if, you know, this and that circumstances, because we see it as a society, we see it as grievous bodily harm. And that is against our laws. So Mr. Sebastian was directly tied into that case. And that's, that's a huge part of body piercing, not just in the UK, but in in the world, like the concept of like, you can consent to all different kinds of things that like, traditional society might not be able to conceptualize. Well, yeah. And another time that it came up in recent history, there was um, a really, it was a court case that was pretty reasonably um, written about uh, publicly where, um, and it's not a unique case, unfortunately, but a woman um, died, was killed um, during a sexual encounter with her partner. And it was tried as a murder case. And um you know, I'm, I mean, I'll say that I think that she was was murdered and killed unlawfully. But the the entire argument um, around her death was that, well, she consented to take part in those activities. She consented to be involved. Um, and, you know, surrounding the situation, just to give a little more detail to people that weren't familiar with the case, she was, you know, completely drunk and drugged past the point of being able to consent to anything, you know, so it's it's really not to do with the activities themselves, but just more the condition she was in. And um, the person on trial for this, the man on trial for this was, you know, a wealthy individual. And basically uh, the, the prosecution used the argument 
that uh, that Mac was put in jail for, that Dr. Evil was put in jail for, for um, GBH, for performing, I think, was it an ear removal? Or was it just a series of things? I think... Uh, well, we don't need, we don't need to be... Specific. Yeah, I think it's a real... I think it was, I think it was like something related to a nipple and something related to a tongue split. Yeah, so he was imprisoned for that, for GBH, despite there not being uh, a complainant that had work done on them. Right. And he was in prison for that. He served his time for that. Um, and the, the prosecution actually used that argument. They said, look, here is a recent trial where it has been proven in UK court that you cannot consent to harm being done to you in that way um, to try and get justice for the death of this woman. And the court ruled, no. They said that she she could totally consent to what had happened and that it was fine. Um, and obviously, one of the only differences is, I assume, the vast amounts of money that the... the, the Wait, um, so the guy got away with it? He completely got away with it, yeah. Um, I think that he... You know, I don't, I don't think that... I think that he may have been imprisoned for a short period of time for accidental death or manslaughter, but he was never charged with with her murder it wasn't um it didn't result in a in a murder conviction but that's what was so shocking was that this horrendous and i read i read the court transcripts which i won't go into detail of but i read the horrific description of this woman's death and the reason i was drawn to it was because it mentioned the mac case which yeah. is what got me interested and the prosecution were actually using it as a precedent to say, well, this guy's in jail for doing, you know, this work. And this is proof that you're saying yeah. people can't consent. And in this instance, because it was a woman that had died and a rich guy that had killed her, it was basically like, no, we think that she could consent and that she that she was into it, basically. And it was like, that, it's so horrendous. weird how that like that can almost be turned around to like negate the case that convicted Mac. And yet it wasn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, well. Maybe maybe he should have been a millionaire before he thought about what he did. <laughs> I, anyway, I, yeah. can I just say that this conversation has gotten really heavy and let's go oh. back to the magazine article about body piercing. Yeah, we kind of went down a hole there. A bit. Um, anyway, the point that I was making in an incredibly long-winded way is that like, I think uh, the argument of consent only appears to be relevant depending on you know who's, who's needs it's me who, whose needs it's meeting. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that anybody could argue that what happened to the people involved in the Spanner case was anything more than, you know, a homophobic hate crime. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear to me. Now, where was I? There is currently no specific legislation to cover it. The Local Government Miscellaneous Provisions Act 1982, which requires tattooists, ear piercers, acupuncturists and administers of electrolysis to register themselves and their premises, does not cover any piercing other than that of the ear. Although the Environmental Health Office has finished putting together some guidelines as to body piercing regulations with the help of Bristol-based piercer Phil Barry, they're not likely to become law until next year. Until then, the judgment handed down by Judge Rant and confirmed by Lord Lane in 1992 is still relevant. He held that under Section 36 of the Criminal Justice Act of 1972, the satisfying of the sadomasochistic libido is not reason enough to inflict permanent injury, whether or not consent is given to its infliction. This seems to mean that piercing is allowed purely for decorative purposes, but not to fulfill a desire or sexual enhancement. Which seems like a really long-winded way of saying you can have it, but you can't enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. You can get pierced, but if you have a boner while you're doing it, it's illegal. Yeah. 
Obviously, such things as eyebrow and lip piercings are unlikely to be held as anything other than decorative, but in the book Modern Primitives in 1989, Investigation into Piercing, Tattooing, Branding and Burning, Jim Ward, who estimates he has performed over 17,000 piercings in his time, remarks that 90% of the modern genital piercings are done because the person wants to enhance his or her enjoyment of sex. This is the primary reason. It definitely takes sex up to a higher octave. The men I interviewed confirmed this, and to be honest, apart from liking the way it looks, why else would you put a ring through your dick or a stud in your clitoris? That just sounds uncomfortable, doesn't it? <laughs> you want to put a stud in your clitoris? Ugh. I mean, you know, do it if you want, I guess. <laughs> I, when I hear the word stud, all I can think of is like Claire's accessory mm-hmm. piercing stud. Right, right. That's like true. that's the... That's you know, I, I've, I've, I've had my fair share of, you know, downstairs piercings in my lifetime. And I got to say, like, you know, sexually, I could take it or leave it. <laughs> um, you made me lose my place. Sorry. Still, the piercers interviewed are keen to emphasize the difference between piercing for increased sexual pleasure and S&M piercing. Tina Marie, in particular, wants to dispel the myth that piercees are suckers for pain. She feels that many men misinterpret the significance of a woman's piercings and think she wants to be hit about or something. In an article, Our Bodies, Our Piercings, for Body Art magazine, she argues, if you are a pierced woman, you're often thought to be a whore or slut. There is a myth that women who are pierced are into pain. We accept that some are, but certainly not all are. Certainly, the pain involved in the piercings I witnessed was not eagerly anticipated. Both Tom and Ashley saw the hurt as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. Other people interviewed also saw the actual piercing as something to get over and done with in order to gain the long-term painful pleasures of being pierced. Elaine says that she's an ex- she's seen an explosion in demand for body piercing over the last two years and now estimates that Gauntlet does 500 piercings a month. Phil Barry won't reveal how many he does for tax reasons. So who are all these freshly bejeweled folk? And what is so great about the piercing that it made them decide it was worth risking so much pain in those embarrassing metal detection scenes at customs? It's accepted now that piercing has moved out from the exclusive province of gay men. Mr. Sebastian says that at first women were slow to catch on, perhaps through piercings associations with slavery and subjugation. A Hindu woman has her nose pierced for marriage. Other Eastern societies equate the nose ring with virginity. And in some Muslim countries, genital piercings are used to sew the female up until she is married. And then she is painfully cut free for penetration. I really just need to clarify that that's that that's incorrect. People aren't pierced with jewelry. I mean, maybe I. I mean, I wouldn't say that that has never, ever, ever happened. But from from all More my of a stitching, right? Yeah, from from all of my experience, there people are sewn together. They don't have like multiple captive bead rings. Um, I mean, I'm aware that people might have multiple captive bead rings, you know, for chastity purposes, for sure. consensual practice. But I just I felt the need to make the correction there because that's that's an I think an inaccurate statement, yeah. and possibly you know part of the reason for the misinformation around the subject you know is is stuff like this. So, um, but many Western women are now using piercing to reclaim their bodies. 
Elaine feels that with the recent US threat of a state ban on abortion, the White House interfering quite directly with a woman's body, many women are still piercing to reaffirm their own control of their bodies. Isn't it nice the world's moved on so much from 1993 <laughs> that we're not having those arguments anymore? Yep, yep. Now that abortion is free and legal everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Body Art reports a case of a woman having her nipples pierced after her baby ceased breastfeeding because she wanted to celebrate their belonging solely to her once more. Well, that's, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. I've, I've had many customers who have gone through childbirth and have had mm. body piercings performed, and, and they've all said the same thing, which is that going through childbirth is like the most, you know, it's, it's like you've never felt like less of a sexual being in your life than having teams of doctors coming in and out and getting hands stuck up you and everything. And it's just like they need something that only they know about that they know that everyone else hasn't seen. It's a really powerful thing. Hmm. Interestingly, according to Tina, women rarely worry about bleeding in the way men do. When they come in for genital piercing, all men ask, is it going to bleed? It hardly ever does unless they've been drinking the night before, which makes the blood thinner and more free-flowing. Women don't ask, maybe because they're used to seeing blood down there every month. That's nice. I feel like that's also, pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, I also just want to add, like, obviously this is 1993, and, you know, so the modern use of gender terminology isn't going to be present in this article. Pretty right. much anyway. Right. Yeah, this wasn't written last month. This was written... 27, 27, 28 years ago. Yeah, quite a while. Wow. The current vogue, particularly among rock and roll types of tongue and eyebrow piercing is relatively new. Elaine can't remember ever, ever piercing a tongue before five years ago. It might be their shock horror value. Today, fewer people are offended by earrings or nose rings, but such piercings are literally in your face. They're miles away from the genital or nipple piercings kept as an intimate secret underneath a city suit. Fashion clearly plays a part. Rings are part of today's LA Seattle rock chic. As Mr. Lifto of Jim Rose's Circus says, I was a freak. Now people come up to me and show me theirs. It's just a phase for a lot of people, of course. People think they're punk rock. You know, I hate my parents. I'm going to get my lip pierced. Mr. Sebastian takes a kinder view. I think there are some people getting pierced because it's fashionable. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. If it became unfashionable, I doubt whether they'd take them all out again. They will have become fond of them. He also feels that as more people have them, particularly on the face, the more others are exposed to pierces. Some will be repulsed, but others will be immediately wanting some piercings of their own. Still, others will be initially repulsed and then later come around to the pierced point of view. For some, piercings can be that missing moment in Western life, the rite of passage. I think it's impossible for human beings to progress unless there are certain magical events that occur periodically, declares noted body modifier Fakir Musafar in Modern Primitives. Oh, This is a great everybody. This is a high street music magazine. Yeah, this is like, this is some journalism. I mean... Uh, that's why I was just so surprised. The rest of this magazine is just like grunge bands that have, you know, sadly not rocketed to stardom to the point where I know who most of them are. And then there's this. It's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. Mr. I mean, Sebastian, Elaine Angel, this Tina Marie person, like, honestly, I didn't know the name already. And now I'm just like fascinated by their career arc. 
Yeah, they were on all four channels, Ryan. <laughs> Which well, in the early 90s would have been a hugely big deal. Yeah, that'd be like somebody being on like MTV and VH1. I mean, it would still be a big deal to be on four channels now. It's just like, you well, know, yeah. there are well, like thousands. Keep it going. These events are called rites of passage, initiation. They should occur a little before, during, or after puberty. A rite of passage must be physical, it must cause pain, it must be bloody, and it must leave a mark. Without one, he says, a person can never truly become an adult. We have a world full of people with middle-aged bodies and childlike interiors. Not many piercers would go so far as to insist that everyone undergoes some form of gory blood fest in order to prove their worth as an adult. But both Elaine and Mr. Sebastian have pierced people who have spoken about this effect. And pierces can be used to commemorate events. Genesis P. Orridge had his first one in his ear, um, which he and Paula decided to commit themselves, when he and Paula decided to commit themselves to each other. To my knowledge, they passed away about one year ago at this point. To my knowledge, they preferred they, them pronouns at the time of their passing. I'll just, I'll just refer to them as they then. In well, this article, they're still referred to as he, so it might take me a second, but they can sure. and, and, and again, we're just kind of like reading the original script of something that was published over 20 years ago. Yeah, I just, you know, like if they're not alive anymore, it'd still be nice to make an effort. Yes, I agree. When they and Paula had their first one in their ear, um, when they and Paula decided to commit themselves to each other, Paula herself keeps five rings in her labia. Each was once a Prince Albert dick ring of a previous lover. As the threat of AIDS means people can't screw around anymore, they're looking for new ways to spice up a monogamous sex life. Older married couples are coming in for the needle for similar reasons. It works apparently. All piercings attest to newfound sensitivity and sensuality after a ring's been put in. So just to kind of date, well, first of all, I, I don't think that people did suddenly become long-term monogamous after, after this time. Um, no. But, just to again, put the magazine into a time context. At this point, it is in the early 90s. But in this magazine, there is a full double page advert um, warning about the AIDS crisis still. Um, mm -hmm. So it was still like massively present in the media at that time. Yeah, I mean, you got to think at that time, um, you know, through the 80s into the 90s, <laughs> it was still very much a crisis because they didn't have a the same kind of concept today of like medical management of testing of prevention. Um, a, a lot of the U S government anyway, was still very much like a, well, ignore it because it's not a mainstream issue. It's very much a gay issue. So it, it's great to see that magazine, you know, being progressive and, and bringing that issue like forefront. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a really, really big double page advert specifically, um, advising on preventing the spread of HIV, still very much geared towards young men. Um, mm -hmm. So still through that lens of it being um, a gay man's problem, but yeah. you can tell that they're trying to educate. 
um, it's just again like a weird time capsule. Yeah. Um, to see how much of a massive, you know, I mean, it's never something that's gone away, but like a massive media campaign um, at the time, or was I now? They feel wonderful. Just the feeling of that metal in my skin keeps me constantly aroused. It's like a little buzz in my body all the time, says one 30-something married woman. Men talk of being aware of their nipples for the first time after piercing. Among all this enthusiastic sexual excitement, Mr. Sebastian seems a little calmer. Piercing is sexual, what isn't? But it doesn't mean that a pierced person is in a mad sexual frenzy all moments of the day, or that you're constantly thinking sexual thoughts. How do you feel once you're pierced? Liberated, sexy, happy, were all answers Genesis P. Orridge felt. Proud and self-satisfied when they first got Prince Albert piercing. The penis ring goes in through the urethra and out through the glands underneath. So named because, okay, this isn't true. I've been told this by... Um, Paul King? No, my lauder. Oh, Matt Lauder. Yeah, I, I think what you're going to, I think what the article is going to mention is like a Doug Malloy piercing urban legend. But I, I kind of have an idea of what's coming. I'm sure that Matt Lauder has told me this isn't true. And which, I believe. Which I believe, which I believe, I definitely believe Dr. Matt Lauder would know best, but bring it back to the beginning of that paragraph and thought so that we can get it all at once. How do you feel once you're pierced? liberated, sexy, happy, were all answers Genesis P. Orridge felt proud and self-satisfied when they got a Prince Albert piercing. The penis ring goes in through the urethra and out through the glands underneath, so named because Queen Victoria's beloved used to attach a ribbon to his ring and thus tuck the royal todger discreetly away beneath, allegedly. I wish it was true. I love the phrase royal todger. Royal todger, yeah. That I think if you're honest, he says, there is also the enjoyment of being separated from the despicable norm. I remember giggling and feeling amused, almost smug. So much for the Piercy's opinions, but what about the psychology of what could almost be seen as self-mutilation? Dr. Martin Skinner, a social psychologist of the University of Warwick, confirms that piercing is at once a blow for both individual and conformity. Pierced people talk a lot about tribalism. They're proud to be of the clan-like association of piercing. It's reminiscent of something I once heard a woman say, that no matter who it was, from whatever background or belief, she would always be able to relate in some way to another mother, something to do with going through the same emotional intense experience. When pierced people talk about how they feel affinity with one another, they talk in similar terms. I'm going to take a pause for a quick second. I just, I reached out to Paul King about pronouns for Genesis P. Orridge and he wrote back. Uh, and Paul sent back a message saying that um, the, the most updated name would be Genesis Breyer. So I want to clarify on that. Uh, and again, you know, 28 year difference between when the article was published and now, but also says, um, uh, she and he and him, her, uh, gender pronouns. So either of those circumstances, I think it's best right now in 2021 to use the she and her gendered pronoun. If anyone asks, you can explain that they were fine with either. Uh, they considered themselves third gender. So just to give clarification on pronouns, I uh, just want to make sure that we're uh, inclusive and respectful. It's not that I'd like to make every person who has a piercing uh, my bosom buddy, says Mr. Sebastian, 
but you have a common interest and you've gone through having the piercing and you've got it and you're proud of it. You recognize that someone else has had that intense experience and enjoyment too, has felt that commitment and you just do have an affinity with them. Dr. Skinner too was fascinated by the incredible social power of piercing. A businessman or a woman can be perfectly stylishly dressed with a briefcase and flashy portafone. Good portafone. I think they mean mobile phone in 1993. Um, flashy portafone, good shoes, all the conventional status symbols. And yet that whole impressive image can be completely negated by the presence of just one visible piercing. People have very strong reactions to pierces, he mused, so strong that I am inclined to conclude that they are seen as a sexual statement. People are rarely so outraged unless sex is involved. Whatever body piercing sexual significance, it's evident that more and more people want to be sending out those sorts of signals and they're willing to suffer for their desire. For despite the short-lived pain of piercing, it really does hurt. Tom's whole body bucked when his nipple was done. I felt my usually admirably stoic stomach swerve when I held the when I held the four steps steady for Ashley's tongue piercing. I saw her pale into immediate mild shock when the needle went in, and yet within a few minutes the agony was forgotten and replaced with a low-key self-satisfaction, a mild glow of internal celebration. So this kind of suggests that the person that wrote the article was actually taking part in the tongue piercing. It's great. Like just just the level of care, it seems like the person who wrote this article might have had some sort of personal connection to body piercing. It doesn't seem like a subject that would just be assigned to a writer and that they would get this in depth with it. Like they, I, I wonder what they had pierced. Um, there's a great picture here of Roddy from Faith No More smoking with a, a Tiger King eyebrow ring. Nice. Uh, and, a, and a circular barbell in his earlobe. Nice. As Mr. Sebastian says, I don't think piercing will disappear. It might become less fashionable, but I can't see it stopping. Those pictures of Edwardian men, I'm sure that there weren't many people of that era who saw those photos and yet they existed and many more people will know about it now. And there wasn't a soul I spoke to who had any regrets about their piercings. And that pretty much concludes the interviews with piercers. Um, the rest is just interviews with uh, L7 and, you know, smaller interviews with, um, let's see here, there's a, a short interview. Do you want to include one with like, what was it? Zazafraz Razamataz, what was their name? Oh, I don't feel like they deserve to be included in this because of the <laughs> answers. Zodiac Mind Warp. Right, Zodiac oh. Mind Warp. Zodi I don't know if anybody knows who Zodiac Mind Warp is, but they had some thoughts. Um, why don't we read the Mr. Lifto of the Jim Rose Circus brief? Today? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Just a little thing here. Well, plus there's the added benefit that we don't have to carefully edit out uh, racist terminology like in the Zazafraz bit. Where are you pierced? Everywhere. Ears, nose, tongue, nipples, and paws. What do you call it? Really, I thought you English weren't crude. It's been on TV too, but I still don't know. I just call it down there. Why? I only get those bits done so that I can lift with. So not my eyebrow. It's silly. When did you get them done? 
gradually over the last eight years. I guess my wino was the first, and then my nipples, and then my nose, and then my tongue. For any particular reason, just for work, I got it done so I could be in the circus. Best reason to get pierced, isn't it? <laughs> be in the circus. Um, before I sold car insurance, I led a double life for years. Did they hurt or bleed a lot? Not bleed, but hurt, yes. It's like, it's hard to say, it hurts. It's like a constant throbbing. Another thing is that your body is so keyed up, you get a high off that as well as the pain. Have they gone septic? Bad, no, I keep them clean. I pamper them, take them to the zoo. <laughs> have, you, have you ever regretted it? No, I might, when I'm older, that's what people say about tattoos. I say when I'm old, then I'll think about it. Does piercing affect your normal bodily functions? It hasn't affected them yet. Does my Prince Albert make me spray? Yes, it does. I have to sit down to piss. I was thinking of other things when I said that I wasn't affected. Does it serve any practical purpose? It provides me with a job. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's just part of the job. They make me do it. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine just like Jim Rose was just like poking him with the sharp stick and like, get in the van. We got to make we got to make the next town. What's the worst thing that's happened to your pierced bits? I got caught once at a concert and the pierce was so deep. I got dragged along by this guy until it got untangled. Other than that, I'm just aware of where they are so I can stop them getting messed up. Why pierce? Again, when he says pierce, I think they mean piercings. And right. they're just calling them pierces, but yeah. okay, why pierce? I don't think that he's asking why Mr. Lifto pierces. Like, I don't think that's what they're saying. I had tattoos, scarifications, I'd been branded, I'd done all sorts of body modification. It seemed like the next thing to do. That seems kind of backwards. Yeah. I think a lot of people would start with a piercing and then maybe they would get the other stuff. And um, finally, there is a, there's a list here that just outlines what some different piercings are. So I can read that to you if you like. Ooh, yes, please. I would love to know the 1993 definitions. So what pierce? Technical gen on the pierces de resistance. Oh, they had to work that in, didn't they? Pierces nice. de resistance, that's quality journalism there. Ear, lobe, tragus, the middle bit that joins your ear to your head, or cartilage, <laughs> Anywhere. Wait, what exactly is the middle bit that joins it to your head? Your tragus. That's what they're saying that is. They're saying oh, that's, that's what they're the saying. Okay, okay. It joins your ear to your head. Okay. Or your cartilage, which is everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Weedy, no shock stuff, best left to needle nervy elder relatives. Okay. I can't deal with your piercing pain. So, right. you know, I don't think that's very fair. I can't, I can't deal with sore ears. Nose. The side of the nose and septum, the bit between the nostrils, supposedly an erotic piercing. Ooh. I've never heard that the septum was an erotic piercing. I think it's pretty erotic. I mean, you, you got it when you when you kiss, you're like snoot to snoot. Sort of. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not how you did. <laughs> I'm just gonna push the tip that's of my how, nose into the tip of your nose. That's how we've been doing it. So is that not right? It is the mystery of the dance. Okay. Um, the eyebrow, very LA, and then it says, really? Madonna, named after Madonna's famed spot of beauty above her upper lip. 
Did you ever, did you ever call that a Madonna? Uh, it was called a Madonna or a Monroe. Yeah. Um, I always called it a, a, a Monroe. Listen to this. Uh, the fame spot, uh, the fame beauty spot above her upper lip looks like wayward snot. Man, <laughs> this guy hates Madonna. Yeah. But again with this. Librette, the Kirk Douglas dimple on your chin. Tongue, fine if you want to talk funny for a month. Hand, piercing of the webbing between the thumb and first finger takes three months to heal, during which time strenuous manual activities such as bricklaying, bongo playing, or Nintendo are discouraged. Yeah. They want to pick your nose for you. Right. I'm just thinking, like, I just had these aftercare sheets printed for reopening, and I could have just photocopied this. Yeah. Such a waste of money. Nipple. Breastfeed with your shower head attachment. Navel. Give welly to your belly jelly with the gut empowering piercing. I love that. I would happily put that on a t-shirt. Give welly to your belly jelly. I got I got welly in my belly jelly. Um, labia. Inner or outer. Decisions, decisions. Forchette. A continental term for a pierce through the perineum that delicate bit of virgin skin at you that's <laughs> virgin skin at the base of your i'm not even saying that word i'm sorry i'm okay. not this was written by a man correct i think so uh next it says clitoris and then it just says jesus <laughs> pubic piercing that's the top of the base of your penis lads at least you can see it Foreskin, a kind of urban pagan circumcision. This is a ring which sort of clamps it all together at the top. I mean, it doesn't really unless you had multiple. You know what? Doesn't even matter. Frenum, that tender thread of skin that joins your foreskin to its original owner. What's brings a foreskin? A tear, <laughs> brings a tear to the eye. Um, Prince Albert, through the so-called... Again, I'm not going to say that phrase because it's offensive, yeah. but it's repeated right. here. Yeah. Um, out the back. The most popular penis piercing by royal appointment. Ampelang. This traditional knob adornment looks like two little steel balls on either side of your helmet. A large metal rod runs through to join them up. Uh, Apodravia. As the ampelang, but runs from top to bottom. Get the set if you must. Dido runs sort of sideways along the shaft through the foreskin. No, th that's not accurate. Nope. Just a little tack stitch, really. See, this makes me think maybe this person's just seen like a drawing or a picture and they're like trying to figure stuff out because if they've looked at a picture of a Dido being from the UK, like they might not have realized that it's on someone that's been circumcised and they might be thinking it's like through the skin. Mm, yeah. I would imagine a, a like a diagram of penis piercings, like you might not be able to tell that that's the glands versus the foreskin if you're if you're not very familiar with dicks. Yeah, you know what that's like. What? A fada or bag pierce right through. Professional perforators are careful not to stab a ghoulie by mistake. A ghoulie? Is that a testicle? Yeah. Nice. Geesh or the new man's pierce discreetly tucked away behind the balls, the emphasis on behind, 
invisible, but not without sensitivity. No more pillion riding for you, pal. This was so worth 10 bucks. Yeah. Well, for me, especially like this, this has been a very entertaining day. Um, is there any other, any other good uh, bits in there other than the, the musician interviews? Um, I mean, there's a couple of other little interviews here, but I don't think that any of them can top, you know, like reading the content from Mr. Sebastian and Elaine and Tina Marie and, yeah. and, um, I mean, like there are some great photos of the musicians that are being interviewed. And I mean, there's some really interesting stuff just about, you know, their life experience and what it was like getting pierced for the first time. So there's probably like, you know, nuggets of information in there, but I mean, I, I think that we got the best of it. There's a nice quote here from, um, from L7, just at the end of their article that I'll read for you. Um, in the States, you go to a gig and the girls get seriously pushed to the back. It gets very violent and we're sick of that shit and they're sick of it and they're doing something about it. They actually go to the front with their girlfriends and they start taking over saying, look, don't push us. They're taking back the right to rock out. They're not holding their boyfriend's jackets anymore. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Words of wisdom from L7. Well, uh, thank you for, for telling me about it. Uh, that's, that's something that could have easily just been like purchased on eBay on a whim and then the envelope just sits in the corner of your apartment for like six months until you remember you bought it. So I'm glad that you popped it open and, and read it a little bit today. Well, I think that um, we need to say thank you to Mr. Sebastian for being interviewed and to Tina Marie and Elaine and Genesis Breyer and Mr. Lifto. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, if people aren't familiar, then they should read up about the, the Spanner case um, and educate themselves. Um, but yeah, I don't want to fall down another hole, so. Um, no, but it, it's just, it's good to realize that like, you know, if you, if you love body piercing, you want to explain, you want to explore why you love body piercing and you want to try to find connection to other people who share your love of body piercing. Like there are so many different ways that you can love Number one, that you can love your body. Body piercing is just one of those ways, but there are so many ways that you can love body piercing. There are some people that find it sexually satisfying, emotionally satisfying, aesthetically satisfying, or like I find it very like technically satisfying. Like I, year after year after year, I'm still surprised by like how many people have like perfected this craft in totally unique and different ways. Like 27 years ago, or 28 years ago when this article came out, uh, like Elaine was already like perfecting her version of this craft that she was shown by Jim Ward, who was perfecting his version of the craft. And Mr. Sebastian goes back even farther than that and perfecting his version of the craft. And, um, you know, I would assume that when, when we're long gone, there's going to be other people that are finding body piercing for the first time and, and perfecting it as their craft. And, I'm like totally on board with all of it. I'm fascinated by all of it. And I'm, I don't really 
have much of an emotional connection to many things, uh, but body piercing, like no matter what, if you love body piercing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find something in common with you. Even if you love it in a different way. Like I just love body piercing so much that I'm fascinated by all these stories from everyone else who loves it. Yeah, I think it's important to review some of the instances where body piercing has coincided or clashed with the, the British justice system. And, you know, like as part of the UK APP, a big part of that is trying to liaise with local government and local authorities around issues that affect the piercing community. But even for me, um, I have like extreme reservations about pushing for things like legislation when you don't have a real stake in being part of that legislation because it's just going to come from someone who has no familiarity with the work that you're doing. Sure. Um, limited exposure to your point of view. And I do think that more regulation can potentially cause more harm in a lot of instances. I think the industry does a really fantastic job by and large of regulating itself, mm -hmm. um, promoting premises that are safe and, um, you know, weeding out premises that aren't so safe. Well, you can, you can kind of see it just like going back to this article and comparing it to modern day body piercing, like a lot of the advancements in body piercing were made by piercers who just cared enough where they, they pushed the industry forward. They weren't forced to go a certain way because of a health department. Like Jim Ward didn't invent, develop internally threaded jewelry because he was forced to, it just, that made the most sense for someone who cared about body piercing and, and, and saw that it had a future, you know, and all the other advancements of, of techniques and aftercare and all that stuff, like that's all driven by the ingenuity of body piercers. Um, yeah, I would really like to do, uh, well, I, I would really like to do an episode with you eventually, not now because we've, we've already gone pretty deep down holes, but I would like to do an episode where we talk about how to, enact positive change through dealing with regulatory agencies. Yeah, I mean, I would like to be, you know, part of enacting positive change. And I would certainly go to bat every single time for the industry about issues that relate to the community, whether it's directly to me or to other people in the UK. But um, I also can definitely see the, the extreme potential danger that comes from sticking your head out of a hole and making a target of yourself and saying, Hey, give us more regulation. Yeah. Um, because that, that does have a, a potential to be incredibly damaging, which I mean, is part of the reason that the UK APP was established to begin with, to actually create an answer to those questions so that when issues do arise, we can be there to try and stop things from getting to that level where decisions yeah. are made without cons consultation and without representation. But I mean, even now, I don't know if that surprises some people, but I'm very much like anti-increased regulation and increased policing in, in a lot of different respects um, for reasons still such as the Spanner case. It's, it's important for people to realize that when you say things like, you know, the APP, the UK APP, all these other like local organizations that have popped up over the last few years, it's not just about like a cool sticker to put on your front door or like a logo to put on your business card. It's backed up by a conscientious group of volunteers who care enough to, to be there uh, for, for things like legislative support, uh, medical industry support, all these different things, you know? So like if, if the government is going to crack down and try to over-regulate something, like what you want 
is an organization ready to, to step into it and say like, you know, here are our uh, protocols and practices. Here's what we can do to support you so that you can have information. The last thing you want is for some like uh, elected official who has no idea of body piercing to be telling you how to perform a body piercing. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's end on, on some positive energy. Uh, I really like body piercing. I like body piercing too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you can ever considered you, uh, the Royal Todger? Yeah, you can call it the Royal Todger. Hmm. Okay, well, I think this is a good place to cut it. What do you think? I think I need more tea. Yeah, I think I need more food. I want to thanks make... for reading my article with me. Well, I, thanks for reading it to me specifically. I just I listened to it and commented unnecessarily. I thought it was. Definitely worth 10 bucks. Yeah. Well, that was a uh, select pop. What was Babylon? it? Select pop Babylon from 1993. Um, maybe I can get you to take a few pictures of it that I can include in like the blog post. And then eventually maybe you should scan that for posterity and, and historical. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for listening to the Piercer, the, the Piercing Wizard podcast. And um, if you have a complete collection of PFIQ, I want to buy it from you. Bye. Oh, is there anything else? Anything else you want to say, like social medias and whatnot? Not really. Okay. All right. Well, we're on the internet. Good luck. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. Can you hear me okay? Am I being loud enough? Because if what? I'm, I'll have to move the laptop closer to me because I can't speak any louder. Move the laptop closer to you, definitely. Always move the laptop closer to you when we're recording because you have the smallest voice. Well. <clears throat>